You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights which help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up to date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. I'm your host, Asher Matthew. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic intent and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Sunnyside Up, the podcast where we share with you the latest and greatest in marketing and sales trends. My name is Asher Matthew, and I am your host for this episode. I'm also the VP of Revenue and Operations at Demand Matrix. And so I'm delighted today to have a guest who is not from the U.S. As this podcast is global, we want to showcase people from all over the world. And we have somebody from the APAC region today. And so please join me in welcoming Scott Caulfield. Scott, welcome. Thank you very much, Asha. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Terrific. And so, Scott, with Customer Troop All Podcasts, right? Tell us who you are and how you got to where you are. We would love to learn about your journey. And that just gives us a better appreciation of you and sets of the conversation. Yeah, look, thanks, Ash. I suppose my, if I, I like to look at my sort of journey in these kind of, I had a 10-year block of, of corporate and then did a startup and then did another 10-year at corporate and then have had the last sort of seven years involved with startup and acquisition. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's given me a pretty good perspective on, you know, business and you know, in sales and marketing, which are the roles I've had. You know, I think I, I was very lucky. I spent 10 years at CA Technologies. Now, a lot of people kind of see that as a bit of a, you know, a hardcore place to work, quite, quite cutthroat. The history of the business of Charles Wang was, you know, he preferred hustlers than, you know, well-polished graduates. But they had this concept of, you know, you, you run your little bit of the business like a franchise. And I think that gave me a great sort of grounding in, in business. You know, if I think about, you know, when I started my career, interestingly, the sort of the key competitors then were between the, the companies that I think are all gone today, except for Microsoft, you know, Microsoft, who had their productivity suites. And then you had the competitors like Lotus, which was your big spreadsheet player there and WordPerfect, which was the the word processor, and those were the big applications of the day. And I started my career at WordPerfect, which is, uh, is, is, is interesting to, to think back to now. You know, then fast forward to the early 2000s, I think like a lot of people, I got, got involved in a, in a successful startup, which was fantastic in the payments, micropayment space, you know, basically started that up and sold it, which was fantastic. Uh, and then, uh, you know, got married, had children, so I went back into the corporate world, spent my 10 years at CA, and then uh, in around 2013, after you know 10 years in the corporate life, I wanted to do something different and got involved with a local startup called NextGen uh, as a CMO, really to, you know, as part of that, that, that go-to-market for that organization or the NextGen group, as it's now known, was really to develop and sell digital services. And that led us to the acquisition of the Bang Australia, which is the uh, you know which is a, a sort of leading local digital and creative agency. The group CEO basically said to me, you know, you buy it and you own the outcome, and uh, that's how I became the uh, the managing director of uh, of Bang Australia. It almost sounds like be careful what you wish for, because when you get it, <laughs> you have no choice but to have fun with it and grind it out. I love it. 
<laughs> it's been something that's true in my life as well. You know, like we all have these aspirations and it's like you catch a wave and then you have your, your surfboard and then where you look is where the surfboard goes, right? <laughs> that is the only analogy or the closest analogy I can give to this trajectory. So love it. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you're from APAC and you spent a considerable amount of time in the APAC region. So for folks like myself who are in the Americas, you know, we always think like, you know, the Americas folks are fast and, you know, they like to experiment with new things. And we always try to do so many things at the same time, right? And that is true of marketing as well. You know, we want it all, we want it now, and we want it done yesterday, right? And so... So tell us the difference between marketing in Americas versus marketing in APAC from your viewpoint. Uh, that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the answer is kind of, um, it's very different, but the same. It's, it's one of those answers. I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people that haven't spent significant time in Asia don't understand is just the size of the market. You know, if you look at it from a population perspective, roughly, you know, 4.3 billion people live in the Asian, you know, official Asian countries. Um, you know, that's more than half the world's population. And if you look at things like, you know, mobile phone penetration, you know, like the US and Australia, that penetration is over 100%. So, you know, that's a lot of phones if you think about it. So, you know, the size of the market, I think, is sometimes just people don't understand it, which you know, which represents a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of challenge. You know, again, looking at some some key numbers, actual internet penetration is just over 50%. So, you know, one way to look at it is that there's 2.4 billion users. Another way to look at it is that, you know, there's still, you know, over 2 billion people that still need to connect to the internet in some way. So the opportunity that represents is huge. But I think it gives you that scale and size. So that's, that's I think, the first, the first key difference. The second key difference is, you know, there, there's still, you know, like across, you know, the Americas, specifically in South America, there's lots of different cultures. But, you know, I think culture across the APAC region is very, very different. I mean, if you compare countries like, you know, Singapore, which is in this region, it's known as Asia Light because it's, you know, it's, it's a big, fast moving city. You can go to Starbucks. You know, compared to going to places like India and China and Korea, which start to become much more, you know, still have a lot of their cultural traditions, you know, and, uh, you know, there's some sensitivities there. You know, there's, there's things, you know, like uh, in, in India, while it's so-called been banned, you still have the caste system, which, you know, operates kind of in business. It's, you know, it's, it's a sensitive issue. Uh, and then in Japan, of course, you know, the, the hierarchy in business is very real. You know, I mean, a young Japanese salesperson would never cold call or in-mail a senior executive. You know, that just wouldn't be done. So, um, you know, very different in terms of, of how you have to approach things from a marketing perspective and a sales perspective in many ways. You know, that really leads to still the concept of events is a very popular um, marketing you know medium for interaction and uh, you know meeting people and engaging obviously somewhat more challenging given the the times that we uh, we find ourselves in and then you still have the same same stuff you know things like video as a as as a medium for uh, you know for communicating messages etc is is showing you know huge increases in popularity and and, and consumption you still have your Facebook Google duopoly that is, you know, growing strongly. 
although it does face, um, you know, some significant competition in countries like China, where you've got Alibaba and Bidou. And then, you know, again, the I suppose the final piece in terms of, uh, you know, given the, the high mobile penetration is, you know, things like, you know, relatively new trends, like, you know, micro moments uh, and being sure that, you know, if you're a, a retail brand or something like that, you know, people can access the right content at the right time. So, you know, I think it is similar, but very different. That right there just uncovers a bunch of complexity, right? Because in the US, we look at segmentation, we look at audience management, we look at this, that, you know, we have our like playbooks, right? But it sounds like in APAC, you need multiple playbooks. And thanks for sharing that because for folks that are listening to this podcast who are contemplating expanding to APAC, while on paper sounds like an amazing idea, doing this in real life, like there are significant, I guess, opportunities I would call them to overcome or challenges to overcome and opportunities to expand into that this guidance will tr- help tremendously. And I can, again, attest to it because at Demand Matrix, we are trying to do the same thing is enter the APAC market and we are running into the same issues. And the stuff that you're sharing is absolutely true. I have a question around, you know, since you are a digital services agency, what are the top three things that come to mind that your company is helping customers with today? What are the top three problems? Or we can even just take the top two problems. <laughs> look, I think, um, you know, let's just look at this prior to the whole world turning upside down. Because I think some of the fundamentals that we've been promoting haven't really changed. In fact, they may have been more important now. You know, one of the things that um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to do the right thing and believe they're doing the right thing but they're still using some relatively outdated thinking where it is sort of, you know, sales and marketing as a numbers game. You know, it's smiling and dialing with the inside sales team. You know, the more calls you do, you know, the more sales you're going to get. Or, you know, you're sort of just somehow getting opted in emails into your AMA system and just blasting those out. You know, again, if I can get a 0.1% open rate and I send out 10,000, then at least I get a few leads or whatever it may be. And I think if we look at where we usually start with organizations is saying, look, we've got to start focusing on on focusing. <laughs> you know, most organizations that we work with um, in that B2B enterprise space, they have a finite market. You know, they're not a, a Coca-Cola or a, a, an Apple, or, you know, where you've got literally thousands and thousands of consumer markets. When you really spend some time thinking about who your target organization is, you know, you can usually break it down into a couple thousand, you know, organizations and identify the the actual people that you need to build your brand within your organizations. So that's really the first step that we help organizations with is that sort of shift in thinking. And also, you know, by using data, you can actually get some amazing insights from from the market. So the first stage is really just to spend time and effort learning who your market is, your ideal customer profile, you know, using the technical term, and then the key personas. Once you've really got a good understanding of that, then you can start really looking at at engagement strategies and how you start to, you know, start a conversation with those organizations or those people in those organizations. Great. And so in our pre-interview session, you talked a little bit about sustainable marketing. I would love for the listeners to learn your take on just what is the concept of sustainable marketing and how do you operationalize it? Because I feel like it is so true to even what we believe at Demand Matrix. It's it's about 
focusing on the on the right things. But I would love for the listeners to hear from you. Yeah, look, I think there's two sort of interpretations of sustainable marketing. You know, the first one is all around this concept of being ethical in your production process and using, you know, eco-friendly materials in production, which is obviously very important and more around that production perspective and, you know, making sure, you know, your production process works. For us, you know, we, we really look at it in terms of data and the fact that, you know, we believe there's, there's a lot of marketing pollution. And what I mean by that is, you know, the average, you know, person today receives so many, you know, irrelevant ads, irrelevant emails, unwanted sales calls, and it really is marketing pollution. Um, you know, so our sort of mantra is, you know, don't be lazy, you know, use more data to do less marketing. You know, the aim is to be relevant and credible, not loud and annoying. That's great. <laughs> I'm going to use the hashtag don't be lazy in promoting this podcast. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about, you know, marketing automation and CRM systems, and don't get me wrong, I think they are absolute critical tools, but it does make it easy or much easier, you know, to be really annoying. You know, you add someone that's, you know, got access to a, a couple of uh, social media platforms and a credit card and they can start, you know, just blasting emails and blasting ads to anyone. Well, in some ways, it does make us all marketers and it does make us all salespeople. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> there is a silver lining in there somewhere. <laughs> Great. So it sounds like personally also you're very passionate about being focused and being data driven. You know, where did you pick up on, on this, let's call it data drivenness? We do a lot of work with an organization, uh, I believe, you know, called Bombora. And um, I first sort of they started talking about, you know, and it's obviously it, it matches the, the, their technology but around this concept of sustainable marketing. And I, what I liked about what they were talking about, it was really this concept of, you know, as sales and marketing professionals, in a lot of ways, we've given ourselves a bit of a bad name. So, you know, it really is beholden on us to really look at ourselves as professionals and make some conscious decisions and take responsibility for your actions and understand that, you know, what we do has a, has a huge impact in terms of attention and trust. And, you know, if you're, um, you know, this concept of attention and trust, you know, Seth, Seth Godin does a great job of talking how, you know, they are such valuable commodities in the digital world. You know, getting someone's attention and maintaining trust, you know, is not necessarily that easy. Uh, and that's where this concept of being, you know, credible and relevant comes in. You know, people get, I certainly do, and I think you would too, is the, you know, the concept of clickbait. It's, it's frustrating. So, that, you know, it, it, it erodes your attention and your trust. Totally. And, you know, as I'm thinking about what you're sharing with me, it's every single time I've been in a corporate organization where we've tried to be data-driven, there's always the notion that the data is somewhat always bad. Like, I don't know what it is, but every single time somebody brings up another dashboard or another PowerPoint with numbers on it, the feeling is always something's wrong with this. This can't be true, right? Even though it may be just glaringly true, it just feels like that always. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, do you have a thought on like why that feeling or that emotion exists today? 
Yeah, because I'd say that a lot of the times the data is not right. And I think, you know, one of, one of the big discussions I often have with our clients is, you know, the, this concept of data is dynamic. You know, data is not something that's static. You can't, you know, collect some data in some form and then store it for, you know, a time period and then expect that data to still be relevant. So I think that there really is this, is what data is, you know, A, what data is relevant and what's easily collectible and usable. And second of all, how fresh is that data? We do a lot of work around audience data and, you know, talking to different organizations and feedback, you know, the, the, the sort of feeling is that if you, you know, have a, a database of contacts, after 12 months, you're going to be somewhere between 30 and 40%. It's going to be outdated. So, you know, that, I think that talks to just at that most basic level. Um, then when you start applying other metrics to to that, I think, you know, th- there is an element of, of, of people rightly being skeptical of data. Yeah, valid point. Data decay is a real thing. And that's just what I was going to say. I think the other thing as well is, you know, there is certainly a lot of truth in the, you know, lies, lies and damn statistics because, you know, it is quite easy to manipulate data visually to make it tell a certain story. And I think that is something that uh, we do see a lot of, um, you know, I think the first thing I always look at is, you know, if it's a single data set and it's not benchmarked to something, you, you should start asking questions. And of course, where the data's come from, the source. So it sounds like you're advocating that the data should be tested first before it is utilized, or even when it is utilized, or when it's reported on, it is again tested for for some sort of validity and then those validity benchmarks should be shared and understood, actually, by people before they make an opinion. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in talking to a lot of our clients, you know, which range from sort of medium-sized businesses to very large Australian businesses like, you know, the National Broadband Network. And then, you know, we work with some of the leading global organizations, particularly the tech industry, uh, you know, in their field teams here in Australia. But I think, you know, people talk very freely and openly about data-driven initiatives. And when you start questioning and saying, well, talk to me about the data, what data are you using? And where did that data come from? You know, quite often, or most of the time, there's a, you know, a bit of a sort of gap in the the conversation and people start looking at their phones because really a lot of times it's not truly data driven and i think one of the challenges is that to do data driven you know like when you watch some great youtube video or some you know all, all this amazing data it often refers to you know so how someone like you know amazon or facebook is using it and they've got you know a room full of a 100 data scientists you know for, for most organizations that that's not real so it really when you know when we try and advocate data driven it's part of it is is saying look let's find the, the the simple usable and effective data we don't need to you know have all thousands of different data sets you know we we believe there's three key data sets that can really get you started on a data driven journey terrific and and can you elaborate on those three different data sets I, I certainly can and you know it, it it's we like to put them up as a as a Venn diagram and and you know the I'll come to the the overlapping little piece in the middle you know the first one is as I said before is really you know taking some real effort to to understand what your ideal customer looks like and who the key people are within those organizations to the point where you've actually got a list of those organizations you know stored somewhere and you've got the names of the people that you want to build your brand 
So that's that, that's the first set of data. So we like to, you know, it's audience data. The next component that we look at is, is in the intent data. And, uh, you know, there we are taking that, those now organizations that we know are already a good fit and we're starting to, you know, look at their digital behavior using intent data and try to find the trends, you know, the upward spikes in their research and content consumption behavior that would suggest that they are in market for the products and services that, you know, the particular business sells. Our metrics show that roughly 15% of a kind of total addressable market or a target audience is in market at any one time. So, you know, if you've got 3,000 organizations that you're targeting, you know, only 350 of those will actually be in the market for what you buy, which is an interesting metric when people start, you know, looking at how they're going to penetrate the market and sales forecasts, et cetera. So, you know, we go from there and we say, well, we've got these organizations that we know are a good fit. And, you know, there's a group of them that we can see are researching things that we sell online. That's a, that's starting to paint a bit of a picture. The final piece as we look at is, is engagement data. You know, again, this can be extracted um, from a marketing automation system or specialist visit insights tags or insights products, I should say. And really what we're trying to do here is understand who is visiting, you know, particular business's website and what they're doing on that website. So, you know, and that's what we call engage, engagement data. You know, we can get a little bit more um, complex than, than, you know, website engagement around, you know, events, participation, et cetera. But once we've got companies that fit, that, you know, are showing intent and are actually on a particular organization's website doing research, you know, you can sort of say, well, you know what, that's a well-qualified target audience you know that's that's i'm sure if i start going to try and engage with them i'm going to be relevant i'm going to be credible because i've taken the time to to understand what they're doing and that that's really you know the way that we like to use it and we we really work on those three data sets to identify you know that group of organizations that sort of sits you know we call it a three out of three score you know that really helps you know focus the the resources of sales and marketing on a much smaller group of, of organizations. The challenge with that is usually is that that market is usually smaller than people were, were anticipating. So we have to do some some other clever stuff where we, you know, go after that target audience that we know who they are with the assumption that they're going to buy something in the next 12, 18, 24 months as you start to build your brand, you know, build credibility without trying to sell to them. That's super cool. Thanks for sharing that framework because it really gives even me an idea to think about it. And it's almost like a data stack of sorts is starting to get created, right? Because I've interviewed other people on podcasts and, you know, they'll talk about firmographic data, contact data, technographic data, intent data, you know, so so there's there's almost like a stack, right? Just the same way that we have our sales tools and we have our marketing tools that is coming of being. And then companies have to take that data stack and look at it from an internal versus external perspective. So all great stuff. Well, Scott, this has been great. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And customary to how we end the Sunny Cider podcast, is there a Scott-ism that you would like us to share, which would be your banner or your platform message? Because we want this podcast to be about your message to the world too. So what would that message be for the world? Don't be lazy. Use more data to do less marketing and be credible and relevant. Terrific. Well, on that note, folks, don't be lazy 
and don't be <laughs> annoying and get your marketing done correctly. And if you don't know how to do it, contact Scott. And so, Scott, is it okay for our users to reach out to you? I'd love to hear from uh, from anyone that's interested in you know using data in a more effective way and get started on that journey. Terrific. And what would be the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Well, given that I'm on the other side of the world, I, I probably wouldn't appreciate a phone call at three o'clock in the morning. So um, probably um, email is the is is the best is the best vehicle. And uh, you know, I really do enjoy chatting to to people, uh, particularly in other other areas, and you know understanding some of their challenges so i'd welcome i'd welcome some uh, some interaction terrific and scott can you just share your email with the listeners so it's uh, very simple it's scott at bang b-a-n-g dot com dot a-u so obviously the a-u being for australia perfect well thanks again for coming on to the show and uh, we look forward to having you back on the show a little bit later down the road to share with us more things that are coming up as we come out of COVID and how companies are responding, or I would say rejuvenating their marketing efforts and getting back to a normal. So thanks again for joining us. Great. Thanks, Ash. I really, really enjoyed being on, on, on the show and I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And more importantly, share these insights with your peers. Music